Welcome to Cinema Talk, the podcast of the UW Cinematheque. This is Mike King. I'm a programmer here. On Saturday, November 13th, the Cinematheque will present a 35mm print of Sean Baker's The Florida Project. Originally released in 2017, this contemporary classic of American indie cinema is set at a budget motel just outside of Walt Disney World. Six-year-old Mooney and her friends treat the run-down Magic Castle as their private wonderland, blissfully unaware of the precariousness of their situation, while Mooney's mom resorts to increasingly dangerous methods of making ends meet. Our free screening coincides with the publication of J.J. Murphy's revelatory new monograph on the film's production from University of Texas Press. Sean Baker previously joined us in person at the UW Cinematheque to present Tangerine in 2015, and his film Prince of Broadway was included in our 2009 Wisconsin Film Festival. Our guest on this episode is J.J. Murphy, Professor Emeritus here at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where he taught film production and studies courses for many years. His films include the avant-garde classics Print Generation and Sky Blue Water Light Sign, which have been restored by the Academy Film Archive. His previous books include Rewriting Indie Cinema, Improvisation, Psychodrama, and the Screenplay, and The Black Hole of the Camera, the films of Andy Warhol. His book on the Florida Project is out now. Here's our conversation. J.J. Murphy, thank you for joining us on Cinematalk. So your book is part of a newly launched series from the University of Texas Press called 21st Century Film Essentials. I thought we could start by asking what led you to write about this particular film? Because, you know, I mean, there's a lot to choose from. So what qualities does the Florida Project have that let you know it could sustain a book-length survey? The, the book originated from a talk that I gave at SCMS. I had been invited to join a panel on screenwriting, and I gave a talk on Sean Baker. Donna Kornhaber, who was one of the people in charge of the panel, contacted me and, and asked me if I would, she told me about the series, that she was the series editor for 21st Century Film Essentials. And she said, you can write about any, would you be interested in writing about any film that you want? And would you consider the Florida Project? Um, I knew Sean. I followed his career from the very start. I couldn't think of a nicer filmmaker to deal with. At least, you know, that was my um, impression. So I thought, oh, this will be interesting to do. So anyway, I, I agreed to do the book. The resulting book presents a really thorough portrait of the making of the film, starting with the very earliest stages of its conception all the way through its release. We get a really deep look into the creative process. We see how much the film changes as it goes through different drafts in all stages of production. So I'm wondering if in all this research that you're doing, if what maybe surprised you the most that you found? Many, many things surprised me. Um, for instance, I, was, I always assumed that Willem Dafoe was attached to the production from the very start. I just assumed that. And I, as I went through the pro project, there was nothing that led me to believe differently. Until suddenly, like one time, I, I decided to ask this question, well, when did Willem Dafoe get? There was something that must have been said to me that made me suddenly wonder, hmm, like, when did he become involved in the film? And then I found out it was very late. 
In other words, it was, you know, <laughs> not, not too long before the film actually began, and they were still negotiating with him when the film was already in production. Right, so it's not like they were using him as a way to sell it. No, not at all. I mean, you know, Sean's very interested in using non-professional actors, and I think he thought that Willem Dafoe was too big an actor. So that was one thing that I found really surprising. The other thing that, that quite frankly, I never realized how many loose ends there were to this film. So, for instance that they would go and actually go into production not having a certain character or an actor cast or not exactly knowing the ending of the film. I mean, all these things came as a real surprise to me. And yeah. it's very much involved with the way that Sean works, which is like, he's basically an improviser. And so, um, he doesn't like to make decisions um, until the last minute. So he keeps a lot of balls in the air and then he knows like, oh, okay, now I need to make a decision, which one, you know, and he'll, he'll do it. I mean, that's my sense of what he does. We also didn't realize the extent to which Sean really uses a team approach to making a film. I mean, he, you know, people think of independent filmmakers as auteurs and in a sense he he is an auteur but he very much relies on a group of people around him who he who he really implicitly trusts um and they're very important to the project and he re he relies on them it's something that i used to i remember i used to when i taught production i used to tell my students, my production students, because sometimes the directors, you know, there'd be really good suggestions being made on set. And um, they would just, you know, the director would just decide just whatever the director wanted to do and wasn't really listening to what other people were saying, even though there would be better ideas. And I would always say, you know, a really smart person is the person who knows how to choose from all the ideas and in a sense that's the way Sean is anybody who has an idea he listens and he's open to to suggestions from people he trusts you describe him as an improviser in the way that he works but at the same time the Florida project is a film that's born of extensive research in a way that's typical for the way Sean Baker works um, it's like an essential part of pre-production for him he cares very deeply about getting the details right about this community he's portraying. Um, can you talk a little bit about how he goes about this? Yes. I mean, he usually um, goes into a community. He's like an ethnographic, I mean, it's an ethnographic approach is what I would call it. It's like an anthropologist. I mean, he goes in, he goes, um, he, you know, he spends time in the community. He uses informants in the community um, to learn about, um, what that milieu is actually like. So he has ideas. He's done a lot of extensive research with books, but he actually then goes into the environment and or the the subculture and really you know gets a feel for it. And that includes even writing the script. Um, mm. One of the reasons that the script was delayed was because he had to go in. He had to actually go to that place to 
to feel like he could write about it, like mm-hmm. in the place that that there was different between there was a difference between him writing outside or inside um, that that subculture. He also had a grant um, to to do that, so he made a series of trips, and I know that um, his whole conception of the film changed radically in doing the research. Well, this kind of research seems to sort of go hand in hand with well, something you mentioned earlier, which is his how he consistently works with first time performers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, throughout his career, he's had this knack for finding these incredible new faces and putting them at the center of his movies. Mm-hmm. And there's a long tradition of this in indie cinema. But the question of how these performances are created often feels intangible or difficult to explain it's something you rarely get a satisfying answer on so for me one of the valuable aspects of your book is how particularly through your interviews with samantha kwan it really demystifies how filmmakers can work with first-time performers could you talk a little bit about getting to the bottom of this question uh yes that was a very important question for me i i was amazed at the performances he was able to get from the children in particular Mm -hmm. and also from having non-professional actors you know working with you know opposite willem defoe that's Mm -hmm. pretty intimidating and i thought that they held their their own um pretty well um so um so that was an important question that i had and so one of the first people I actually talked to was Samantha Kwan because I was so interested in that idea of performance. Like, how did how did they deal with the you know the the children? How did they you know what, what the, whether it was like casting, but then how did they actually get the children to perform that that way? A lot of it is his casting. He has a sort of intuitive sense about people and their ability to perform. And I think that that's really important to his success. You know, so like, you know, he could see, like he could find Valeria at a Target store and realize, oh, like there's something about her that's special. Or he can, you know, he looks at people and it's like he can imagine them in in the role. Uh, As far as Brie is concerned, I mean, he saw her on a, you know, a on a Instagram or someplace like that and on social media and thought, oh, like she would be good. He saw Mella Murder like in a film, which I saw and I wouldn't have been able to say that she would have been perfect for that role. And yet he was able to intuit that. And I think that, that, that a lot of that is, you know, he has a rare ability to sort of, you know, cast people correctly. Um, and that's Absolutely. that's more than half the battle. And also, I think it's how he works, which is, you know, as she explains, like he picks people because of a certain vibe that they have, like about their personality. And so he wants that to come through. It's a very different approach than, say, Kelly Riker uses. You know, she prefers using professional actors, whereas he wants to, you know, those fresh new faces and he wants, you know, different people. And let's face it, you know, to cast Hollywood stars in roles of people who, of single moms living in motels under dire conditions, there's something inauthentic about that that Sean real, you know, realizes. 
mm-hmm. and thought would, would actually ruin the film. So he was very careful about who he cast um, in, in you know, various roles. So, and some of it is about making feel, people feel very comfortable. He's not hung up on like the script has to be, you know, the dialogue has to be said a certain way. It's very flexible. I mean, there were times I know when his co-screenwriter felt, oh, this line of dialogue is very important, but that's not the way Sean approaches it. He, you know, he, uh, he would basically say, you know, especially with the kids, you know, what he learned about the kids was they were better. (laughs) They were better when they weren't saying the dialogue that was written. It was much fresher. And there's this very funny scene in the, it's one of the first scenes that were shot where he's on the, in Over the Rainbow, the film about that Alex Coco did about the production. They're in front of the tasty treat and they're all, they're ready to do the scene and Chad said, doesn't have to be like it is in the script. Like he's telling him, I mean, like the first thing he's telling him is don't, don't get hung up on the lines, you know, just say what you, you want. Mm-hmm. So there's that aspect right. to it. Yeah. Well, I mean, this sort of leads us into the question of alternative scripting methods, which you've been studying in indie cinema for a long time. And, you know, this book shows how instead of a conventional locked shooting script, Baker, as you say, works from a flexible concept for which you use the term screen idea. Um, you write that Baker finds the film he's, in, he's making in the process of actually shooting it. And we see that this nimbleness creates a kind of ongoing inspiration that's a big part of his creative process. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what the screen idea is and how it applies to the Florida Project. The screen idea is the essential idea for the film, which the team members of, you know, Sean's team, they get the concept of the film. That's the most important thing to understand is what is this film really about? They understand that. It's not the script necessarily. It's not the screenplay. It's like the essential idea for the film. They all sort of share in that. So so the co-screenwriter, the various producers, he makes people, like for instance, the co-screenwriter, he makes him a producer so he can be on set, which you can imagine riles like a professional crew to have a screenwriter whispering in the, in the director's ear. Um, while they're shooting a scene. Yeah. I mean, he, Chris Burgosh even says in the book at one point, we're reshooting as we're shooting. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And so, um, so that group has that idea, but that came in conflict with the actual crew who didn't necessarily Mm -hmm. understand the idea for the film. They understood, you know, they're looking at like, this is what we have to shoot today. And it's, you know, it's very regimented. I mean, that's how film crews are set up. And so Sean would come along and completely change the idea for the film, which drove everybody pretty crazy. Whereas the people around him have total confidence that he knows what he's doing. The other people thought he didn't know what he was doing. So that caused a real crisis on, on the set. And it didn't help that the the um, the first AD quit the day before production was scheduled to begin, which Yikes. delayed the project 
even um, even further. Um, and you had asked me earlier, you know, like what what were some of the things uh, that that I didn't know before doing the book, and um, I, I was just reminded that you know this is this was an extremely difficult film to do. They're shooting in the summertime, like in this intense heat. They have children, so they're responsible for children who could get easily get dehydrated in the sun. And then they're also working in um, work. They're working in hotels that have that that are functional that have guests in it. Right. So they they didn't have the ability to take over the set. So they were shooting, you know, in busy hotels in the, in the same way that that um, in takeout, um, Sean um, and um, Shi Ching Su shot in a in a Chinese restaurant that was open and that had customers coming in and ordering food and. Um, it's the same sort of thing. So, I, I mean, there were all those things that made it difficult. Also, motels are not the safest places. So there was always, there were always issues about safety and whatnot in, in, the, in the motels. All this stuff um, that you're describing, the sort of conflict between um, Sean Baker, the indie filmmaker, and then this film being slightly more of a professional production, the book sort of takes on this thing where it presents an artist at a crossroads in a certain way, you know, I mean, he's finally getting more money to make this film that he wants to do. But at the same time, he feels hamstrung by all these limitations and he can't make a, you know, continual work in progress, as you put it. Yes, it, it did. It, it was a dilemma. So Tangerine was made for a hundred thousand dollars. And then suddenly to have $3.6 million, um, it's quite different. Um, it right. really just, just changed. It, it the changed. size of the crews. Yeah, the everything. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so Sean was used to working with, you know, five people and, you know, running gun. And suddenly, you know, he has a professional crew. And he himself says, you know, he just thought they would get it. Mm-hmm but they didn't. It was naive on his part to think that they would get it um, because they, they didn't. And so in a sense, it was, you know, and also the way that money was being spent was, you know, was an issue, you know, on bigger, bigger productions, um, spend money differently than smaller productions. And so, yes, it, it, it was a dilemma. And, um, I was asked to expand the book and uh, to put, you know, an introduction and a conclusion um, to the book. And in the conclusion, uh, you know, it struck me he could go either way. You know, it's mm -hmm. that he could make a bigger film or he could go back and make smaller films. And so he was planning to do a bigger film, but wound up making a smaller film in Red Rocket, which was shot in 60 millimeter and um, again, non-professionals and throw, I don't know how he made that film. Well, I want to get back to Red Rocket in a minute, um, but 
first, I guess, stepping back um, from the specifics of the Florida Project, I wonder if we could just talk about its place in the longer tradition of American indie cinema. In your book, you connect it to The Little Fugitive and On the Bowery, which are, I think, pretty perceptive comparisons. Yeah, Sean is a cinephile, so he often connects it to art cinema. Mm-hmm. But it, it is also you can easily connect it to to the tradition of the of the new American cinema of the you know mid to late nineteen fifties and early sixties um, when Jonas Mikas was talking about improvisation and that is a tradition within independent film and I mean it's what I dealt with in my last book. And if you look at it through the lens of improvisation, suddenly the history of independent, American independent cinema looks very different. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was really surprised like when after I did that book, to, because I suddenly started to see it in a different way. And it ha- really has to do with the screenplay. So at various times, the screenplay becomes more important. And it's usually because of issues of financing. So, um, you know, Charles Burnett can't get the money to do the film that he wants to do because they don't like this, the script or, you know, what, whatever it, it, it is. So you had to be, so people who were able to write scripts, for instance, in the 90s became, you know, very important and it's very, very much tied to financing. But in the case of Sean, one of the things that's very curious about the Florida Project, and uh, you know, I asked a lot of questions about this, and I was lucky to be able to interview uh, at some length his producer, um, um, Kevin Shinoy. And it was really a bet on, it, they made a bet not on the screenplay, because if you look at what he gave them, it was a script mint. Um, this is months before he's ready to shoot. I mean, I think most people would say, oh, this isn't ready to be shot at all. Um, so he uses placeholders. I mean, it's what he does. I, I, this is my interpretation. I shouldn't mm-hmm. say this is what he does. This is my interpretation of what he does that he creates something that he gives them that will satisfy, oh yeah, he does have a, he, he has a script for this film. Um, but it's not really the script for, for the film. And for them, it's a bet on him as a director and a filmmaker. It's not a bet on the screenplay. And that's very different for a lot of films, where, which are bets on the screenplay rather than on the director, because mm-hmm. who feels comfortable giving somebody so much money? Like when, you know, they always need like proof of something. Well, this is like, well, this is a fantastic script. Therefore, you know, like you never know with a film, like how it's right. going to turn out. So um, finally, as you alluded to earlier, Sean Baker has a new movie that's about to come out, um, which I know you saw at the New York Film Festival. Um, You know, you mentioned it's shot on 16 and it also uses uh, some non-professional 
uh, or first time actors, as he would say. Right. Um, are there any other uh, first impressions of Red Rocket you'd like to share or how it connects to what we've been talking about? Well, um, it's a little bit more conventional in the, in the sense that it seems, this is my sense, again, it could be right, it could be wrong, but it, it's very, um, it has a lot, of di- lot more dialogue in it. So I would say it's more, it, it derives more from the screenplay and less from just pure visual storytelling, although there is visual storytelling. I mean, if you think of the Florida Project, I mean, in narrative terms, nothing happens for the first half of the film, right? right? I mean, it's it's a character study. It's not, you know, it's it's not a conventional narrative. And some, you know, some people don't like it or might not like it because, you know, it doesn't have that conventional narrative structure. And it seems, strikes me that Red Rocket is more is a little bit more conventional in that sense. And it's more of a comedy, hmm. which I found surprising that it was. Florida Project's got some laughs. Yeah, yes. I think the first time I, I, I've, you know, the first time I saw the film, it seemed heavier. The second time it seemed a lot funnier. Of course, I mean, I've I feel like it. there's a Little Rascals thing, which I know is a yeah, 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 too. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And I think, you know, now that I've seen it a million times, <laughs> you know, it doesn't seem heavy to me the way it, it did the first time. Looking forward to Red Rocket. Thank you so much, JJ, for taking the time to talk with us today. Well, it was, it's always a pleasure, Mike. Thank you for having me.